Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. Do you need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more? Make sure to visit Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code THECIRCLE for 20% off their order anytime, and there's always free shipping to the United States. That's secondhandbookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Sarah, and thank you for joining me this week on our journey through the stand. As always, I hope everyone is doing well and staying safe and healthy. So before we jump into Chapter 67, we did get some news this week that the Stand miniseries from CBS All Access finally has a premiere date. The Stand will debut on CBS All Access on Thursday, December 17th. It will be a weekly drop of episodes rather than uh, something you can just binge all at once. And you know what? In the days where television shows on streaming services are generally dumped all at once, I'm a little relieved that the show will be weekly. Not only will this give me time to watch it, hopefully enjoy it and digest, (laughs) but it's been a really long time since I've watched a television show where when it was over, I was excited and anticipating having to wait for the next week to watch the next episode. So I think it's going to be really exciting to do this week by week. Um, It'll give me a chance to review the episodes week by week instead of trying to watch them all at once. So yeah, December 17th, you guys, and I hope you're all excited as I am. So with that bit of news out of the way, let's get going on chapter 67. First, a quick recap, of course, of chapter 66. Lloyd receives news that Trash Can Man had started a fire at the Indian Springs base after a couple of guys out there teased him for his love of fire and weaponry. The fire injured three and ultimately killed two people, including one of the airbase pilots. Lloyd is distracted by what to do about Trash Can Man and how to tell Flag. And while he's thinking this over, Julie Lowry arrives to tell Lloyd about Tom Cullen, explaining how he was in Vegas before recounting her encounter with Tom and Nick Andros in Kansas. Lloyd writes down the information, but he's still fairly dismissive of Julie. Meanwhile, Tom sees the full moon and realizes that it's time to go. He gets on his bike and heads out of Vegas around 11 p.m. No one sees him. He eventually cycles past Flag and Nadine out in the desert, which wakes up Flag, but he cannot see Tom and eventually goes back to sleep. Tom makes some good headway, and as the sun begins to rise, he finds a safe place to hide and sleep. In Chapter 67 Flag has returned to Vegas. Lloyd is there to watch Flag arrive at the Grand, and those who are in the lobby watch Flag lead a woman to the elevators. She has snow white hair, a terrible sunburn, and empty eyes. They looked out at the world with a lack of expression that was beyond placidity, even beyond idiocy. Lloyd had seen eyes like that once before, in Los Angeles, after the dark man had finished with Eric Strellerton the lawyer who was going to tell Flag how to run everything. Flag looks at no one, but merely grins and leads Nadine into the elevator. Over the next six hours, Lloyd starts to get everything organized for when Flag eventually calls for him. He eventually calls Paul Burleson to check on Tom Cullen. 
Paul explains that Tom was between 22 and 35. Tom had never been quite sure. Some work skills, light mental retardation. He was on the cleanup crew, and he'd been in Vegas for about three weeks or so, coming from Boulder. They had tossed him out for having sex with a quote-unquote normal woman. Paul gives Lloyd Tom's address, and when Lloyd gives Paul Nick's name to check, Paul explains that Nick Andros was on the red list. This is news to Lloyd, as he had no idea what the red list was. Paul had assumed Lloyd knew what it was, implying that Flagg himself had given Paul the list of names. Lloyd is flustered by this, but hangs up the phone. Names that Flagg had given to Paul, and no one else apparently, although Paul had assumed Lloyd knew all about it. Red list, what did that mean? Red meant stop. Red meant danger. Lloyd calls Billy Dorgan next, explaining that he needs Barry to pick up someone for him. He needs Tom Cullen alive. Lloyd presses how important this is, but Barry calls back about an hour later to tell Lloyd that it appears Tom Cullen had split already. Barry is sure they can find him as he couldn't have gone far, and he asks Lloyd to give him the go-ahead. But Lloyd stalls, telling Barry that he has to think it over. He'd gotten better at not giving into his impulsive recklessness. Why hadn't Lloyd been told about this red list? For the first time since meeting Flag and Phoenix, Lloyd had the disquieting feeling that his position might be vulnerable. Secrets had been kept. They could probably still get Colin. Both Carl Howell and Bill Jameson could fly the army choppers that were hangered out at the springs, and if they had to, they could close every road going out of Nevada to the east. Also, the guy wasn't Jack the Ripper or Dr. Octopus. He was a phoebe on the run, but Christ, if he had known about this Andros what's-his-face when Julie Lowry had come to see him, they might have been able to take him right in his little North Vegas apartment. Somewhere inside him, a door had opened, letting in a cool breeze of fear. Flag had screwed up, and Flag was capable of distrusting Lloyd Henry, and that was bad shit. Whitney Horgan, not to be confused with Dorgan, <laughs> tells Lloyd that Flag wants to see him. Lloyd is calm, but inside he's afraid. He reminded himself that Flag had saved him from his prison cell. He belonged to the dark man, lock, stock, and barrel. Still, Lloyd knows he can't do this job if information is held from him. And there's a nagging thought that the third spy had been in Vegas all alone, all this time, and Flag hadn't known. When he arrives at Flag's suite, Flag introduces Lloyd to Nadine, who is sitting in a chair, her face blank and moony. Lloyd is a bit creeped out by Nadine, but Flag explains that he's going to be a father. Lloyd plays nice, but Nadine is unnerving, as is the news. Flag doesn't seem to care much about her state of mind. He seems to find it amusing, if nothing else. And then he asks about Indian Springs. Lloyd tries to bring up Trash Can Man and Tom Cullen. However, Flag cuts him off, wanting to hear about Indian Springs. So Lloyd complies until Flag asks if they could be ready to fly over Boulder in two weeks. Lloyd isn't sure about this, but Flag wants them ready. He wants to decimate the free zone and have everyone over there living in caves by the spring. And then they'll head east and hunt them all like pigs. Lloyd nervously brings up the third spy again, but Flag interrupts that they'll find him. The smile was back, darkly charming, 
But Lloyd had seen an instant of angry and bewildered fear before that smile reappeared. And fear was the one expression he had never expected to see there. Lloyd explains that they think they know who he is. Flag is thrown off guard before he loses his temper. He gets violent with Lloyd, screaming at him that Lloyd sat there and talked about Indian Springs when he should have been telling him about the spy. Never mind that Lloyd tried. Something, perhaps it was seeing the dark man vulnerable, perhaps it was the only knowledge that Flag wouldn't kill him until he got all of the information, allowed Lloyd to find his tongue and speak in his own defense. Lloyd tells Flag that he tried to tell him and he cut him off. He cut Lloyd off from the Red List, whatever that was. If Lloyd had known about the Red List, then he could have had Tom Cullen last night. Flag throws Lloyd against the wall and begins destroying the room. Nadine shrinks a bit into herself during the temper tantrum. Finally, when Flag is calm, he helps Lloyd to his feet and offers him a drink and an apology. He explains about the Red List and says, The Red List is something I didn't think you'd ever have to use. There were eight names on it, five now. It was their governing council plus the old woman. Andros was one of them, but he's dead now. Yes, Andros is dead, I'm sure of it. Flag realizes that he hadn't been able to see Tom because of Tom's developmental disability. Then he demands that Carl and Bill Jameson use the helicopters to search for Tom. He wants a hundred men out there closing every road leading out of Nevada. He's determined to find Cullen and bring him back alive. Lloyd nervously tells Flag about Trash Can Man and what happened at Indian Springs. Rather than lose his temper again, Flag tells Lloyd he wants Trash killed, but painlessly, if possible, he doesn't want Trash to suffer. He had felt a certain kinship with Trash and thought he might be able to use him, but he had never been quite sure about it. Flag touches Nadine, who shrinks from him again, and then Flag appears happy. The moon, Flag said, delighted. He sprang to his feet. If the helicopters don't spot him before dark, they'll have the moon tonight. Well, I'll bet he's biking right up the middle of I-15 right now in broad daylight, expecting the old woman's god to watch out for him. But she's dead too, isn't she, my dear? And her god is too, I suspect. Everything is going to work out well, and Randy Flag is going to be a dada. This is when Lloyd smartly takes off, spending about five minutes in the elevator laughing and crying hysterically. He's not falling apart, he told himself. There are a few little problems, but he's on top of them. The ball game will probably be over by the 1st of October, and surely by the 15th. Everything's starting to go good, just like he said. And never mind that he almost killed me. Never mind that he seems stranger than ever. Lloyd is trying to reassure himself that Flag and everything else is going to be okay. About 15 minutes later, Stan Bailey calls Lloyd. Bailey is out at Indian Springs, and the news is not good. Carl, Bill, and a trainee pilot named Cliff had taken off around 6.02 to run a recon mission east of Vegas. At 6.12, both helicopters had blown up in the air. When they checked the hangars, they found two skimmers and three helicopters had been rigged with explosives. It was obvious that it had been Trash Can Man who had done it. Lloyd demands that they check everything to make sure nothing else is timed to explode. Bailey asks why should they bother. All of their pilots are dead. They had no one else. They didn't need the jets anymore. 
Lloyd realizes that Stan is right, and he sits there, thunderstruck. Tom wakes up that morning around 9.30. It was time to get up and go again, because now he knew that they were looking for him. He'd had a dream where Nick was talking to him, which was odd, as Nick couldn't talk. But dreams were funny things, and in his dream, Nick had spoken. Nick told him, They know about you now, Tom, but it wasn't your fault. You did everything right. It was bad luck, so now you have to be careful. You have to leave the road, Tom, but you have to keep going east. And Tom understood, though he was afraid of getting lost in the desert. And Nick gave him directions and told him to look for God's finger. He walked back to the road and left his bike behind. Before long, he saw it, standing out against the star-strewn sky like an exclamation point. God's finger. As he faced due east, the stone monolith was at 10 o'clock. He thought he could walk to it in an hour or two, but the clear, magnifying quality of the air had fooled more experienced hikers than Tom Cullen, and he was bemused by the way the stone finger always seemed to remain the same distance away. Midnight passed, then two o'clock. The great clock of stars in the sky had revolved. Tom began to wonder if the rock that looked so much like a pointing finger might not be a mirage. He rubbed his eyes, but it was still there. Behind him, the turnpike had merged into the dark distance. By 4 a.m., it was a little closer, but Tom knew it was time to find a hiding spot to sleep. What happened when he finally reached it? Tom knew Nick would tell him. Good old Nick. Tom couldn't wait to get back to Boulder and see him. Tom found a fairly comfortable spot in the shade of a huge spine of rock and went to sleep almost instantly. He had come about 30 miles northeast that night, and he was approaching the Mormon Mountains. During the afternoon, a large rattlesnake crawled in beside him to get out of the heat of the day. It coiled itself by Tom, slept a while, and then passed on. Flag, for his part, is trying to think through his mistakes and his fears. He had no idea why he was so intent on catching Tom Cullen. What could Tom tell anyone in Boulder beyond how strong Flag was? It would only demoralize the free zone further. But he simply felt the urge to act, to move, to do, to destroy. When Lloyd told him about the pilots dying in the air, Flag had managed not to explode again. His first impulse had been to order an armored column, assembled immediately. Tanks, flame tracks, armored trucks, the whole works. They could be in Boulder in five days. The whole stinking mess would be over in a week and a half, sure. And if there was early snow in the mountain passes, that would be the end of the Great Wehrmacht. And it was already September 14th. Good weather was no longer a sure bet. How in hell's name had it gotten so late, so fast? It didn't matter. He was the strongest man on the earth. Perhaps there was another like him in Russia or China, but he could deal with that later. He simply knew that Tom Cullen had to be found and killed before he reached the free zone. And what Flack wanted, that's what he would get. But then there was the matter of Trash Can Man. He had thought he could dismiss trash entirely. He had thought Trash Can Man could be thrown away like a defective tool. But he had succeeded in doing what the entire free zone could not have done. He had thrown dirt into the foolproof machinery of the Dark Man's conquest. He misjudged, and that was a hateful thought he would not allow his mind to follow to its conclusion. Flag had reiterated his orders that the trash can man was to be killed on sight. 
The thought of trash wandering around out in all that government property where God knew what might be stored now made him distinctly nervous. Nervous. Yes, that beautiful surety was still evaporating. When had that evaporation begun? He could not say, not for sure. All he knew was that things were getting flaky. Lloyd knew it, too. He could see it in the way that Lloyd looked at him. It might not be a bad idea if Lloyd had an accident before the winter was out. He was asshole buddies with too many of the people in the palace guard. People like Whitney Horgan and Ken DeMott. Even Burleson, who had spilled that business about the Red List. He had thought idly about skinning Paul Burleson alive for that. But if Lloyd had known about the Red List, none of this would have... Shut up, he muttered. Just shut up. Why hadn't he given Lloyd that list? He couldn't remember now, even if he had a good reason for it. How loyal was Lloyd anyway? Flagg had seen that expression in his eyes. To feel better, Flagg began to levitate. It made him feel strong and serene. It cleared his head. But then a voice startled him, sending him crashing to the ground. Nadine. She told him they were coming for him. Flagg's blooming grin withered when he saw Nadine. She was dressed in a white nightgown, yards of gauzy material that billowed around her body. Her hair, as white as the gown, blew about her face. She looked like some pallid, deranged Sybil, and in spite of himself, Flagg was afraid. She took a delicate step closer. Her feet were bare. Stu, Larry, Glenn, and Ralph, they were coming for him, and they were going to kill him like a chicken-stealing weasel. Flagg doesn't believe her. They were still in Boulder mourning Mother Abigail. But no, Nadine says, they're almost in Utah, and they would be there soon stamping him out like a disease. She continues to provoke him, ignoring his demands that she go back downstairs. Nadine says she would go down, and so would Flag. She says everything you made here is falling apart, and why not? The effective half-life of evil is always relatively short. People are whispering about you. They're saying you let Tom Cullen get away, just a simple retarded boy, but smart enough to outwit Randall Flagg. Her words came faster and faster, now tumbling through a jeering smile. They're saying your weapons expert had gone crazy and you didn't know it was going to happen. They're afraid that what he brings back from the desert next time may be for them instead of for the people in the East. And they're leaving. Did you know that? I see them. They're leaving their posts in the dead of night and your eye doesn't see them. They're leaving their posts and sneaking away. A work crew goes out with 20 people and comes back with 18. The border guards are defecting. They're afraid the balance of power is shifting on its arm. They're leaving you. Leaving you. And the ones that are left won't lift a finger when the men from the east come to finish you, once and for all. Of course, Flag believes she's lying and it makes him snap. He snaps her collarbones like pencils, lifts her over his head, and throws her out into the desert sky. He saw the great smile of relief and triumph on her face, the sudden sanity in her eyes, and understood. She had baited him into doing it, understanding somehow that only he could set her free. And she was carrying his child. Flag tries to grab hold of the gauze from her nightgown, but it rips, leaving him only with a scrap of cloth. Then she was gone, plummeting straight down with her toes pointed towards the earth, 
her gown billowing up her neck and over her face in drifts. She didn't scream. She went down as silently as a defective skyrocket. When he heard the indescribable thud of her hard landing flag threw his head back to the sky and howled. But it made no difference. He would levitate, he decided, and regain his state of calm. But it was a long, long time before his boot heels would leave the sun deck. And when they did, they would only hover a quarter of an inch above the concrete. They would go no higher. Tom woke that night around eight o'clock. It was still too light out to move, so he waited. Nick had come to him again, talking to him in Tom's sleep. It was so good to talk to Nick. Tom craved Pringles. He would eat all that he wanted when he got back to the free zone, and he would bask in the love of his friends. That was what was missing there in Las Vegas, he decided. Simple love. They were nice enough people and all, but there wasn't much love in them, because they were too busy being afraid. Love didn't grow very well in a place where there was only fear, just as plants didn't grow very well in a place where it was always dark. Tom began to say their names out loud. It was odd how easily their names came to him. Why back in the zone, he was lucky if he could remember Stu's name when he came to visit. His thoughts turned to his toys, his garage, his cars, his model trains. He had played with them by the hour, but he wondered if he would want to play with them so much when he got back from this. If he got back, it wouldn't be the same. That was sad, but maybe it was also good. The Lord is my shepherd, he recited softly. I shall not want for nothing. He makes me lie down in the green pastures. He greases up my head with oil. He gives me kung fu in the face of my enemies. Amen. When it got to be dark enough, Tom set off again until he finally reached God's finger. In the northeast, he could see moving lights. They were looking for him. Tom had sore feet, but things could have been much worse than that. So he walked on for another 40 miles. The Nevada-Utah border was not much farther. By eight that morning, he was hard asleep. His head pillowed on his jacket. His eyes began to move rapidly back and forth behind his closed lids. Nick had come, and Tom talked with him. A frown creased Tom's sleeping brow. He had told Nick how much he was looking forward to seeing him again. But for some reason he could not understand. Nick had turned away. If that's not one of the more heartbreaking ends to a chapter in this book, I don't know what is. In this chapter, things continue to fall apart for Flag. Lloyd confirms that Tom was the third spy, and, you know, Lloyd might have actually been able to capture him had he known about Nick Andrews being on the Red List. Or rather, had he known the Red List existed at all. Side note, maybe Lloyd should have just checked in on Tom Cullen after Julie told him about him. <laughs> so I'd say it's probably 50-50 uh, Flag to blame <laughs> and Lloyd to blame for Tom getting away. Flag had given that Red List to Paul Burleson, but not his right-hand man. That's questionable, especially as it doesn't seem like Flagg can even remember why he opted to admit Lloyd from the information in the first place. People know who Lloyd is. They know he's a part of Flagg's innermost trusted circle. People go to him with information and complaints. Look at Julie. Maybe if Lloyd had known, then he would have realized Tom was connected to one of the Free Zone committee members. So while Flagg blamed Lloyd for this, it's really... You know, like I said, 50-50, but this is on Flagg's shoulders here. Even Lloyd knows that. It's like Flagg is doing his best to reassure himself that everything is all right. And in his mind, things are going well at Indian Springs, despite the fact that Trash had said explosives, even killing one of Flagg's pilots. 
Flag orders Trash's death, though he has no plans to crucify him for all to see. He wants the death to be as painless as possible with no suffering. He had hoped that he could use Trash, but apparently he had misjudged him. And that's just another chink in Flag's armor. It's another reason for Lloyd to start doubting the strength of the man he's indebted to. Lloyd is feeling pretty resentful being left in the dark about something so important. He's screamed at and thrown across the room for Flag's own failings. Lloyd is probably lucky he got out of that room alive. And while Lloyd tries to convince himself that Flag has everything under control, I think we all know better. Tom is long gone by now, though Flag demands that they send out people to search for him, helicopters included, although Trash makes quick work of those. Not only has he blown up a fuel truck at the Indian Springs base, but he set explosives on much more, including the helicopters, which kills the remaining two pilots and a trainee. We can safely say that Trash is out of control. Flag's plan to fly those jets over Boulder is ruined. Sure, he feels like he could just take the tanks and ride into Boulder now, but if they hit early snow in the mountains, that would be ruined as well. So now he has to wait. And he hates it. He had misjudged Trash Can Man. What else might Trash find in the desert and bring back? What if one of those weapons aren't meant for the East, but for Vegas? My question is, why isn't Flag trying to find Trash himself to take care of the problem? He's saying that he misjudged Trash, and yet he's depending on his other men to do it for him. But Trash had proven himself to be deranged and slick. No one saw him setting those explosives, either time. No one knows where he is now. He's a ticking time bomb, but Flag seems so wrapped up in his own failings about losing the spy. He saw doubt in Lloyd's eyes, too, which has him questioning Lloyd's loyalty. While he's upset at Trash, it doesn't seem like he's overly worried. He's nervous, sure, but not enough to go out himself and find Trash Can Man and kill him. Flag needs to feel strong. He needs to feel feared. That's where he gets his power. Who and what is he if people don't have confidence in that? If they don't fear him? We see a little bit of how it affects him after his encounter or whatever you might call it, with Nadine. Nadine seems to be the voice of all of his insecurities. When Flag arrives with her, she's a shell of a person. She's empty and blank. Even Lloyd is creeped out by her. She's Flag's puppet, bearing his child. And while she doesn't seem completely sane, she seems to know exactly how to provoke him. She can read him as well as he can read others. And she somehow knows that Larry and Glenn and Ralph and Stu are on their way from Boulder. How does she know? Does she have some untapped version of the shine in her? Or can she see now because she's bearing Flag's child? He has the eye. And so now maybe she has some of that as well. Can she see the way that he does? She knows things that he doesn't. She knows they're coming. And they're nearly to Utah, and they would be there soon. She knows they're coming to kill Flag. She knows that when they do, no one in Vegas will lift a finger to save him. Flag is going down. He doesn't even know that people are talking about him in Vegas, how he left the third spy to get away. A quote-unquote feeble man who is able to outsmart Randall Flag, And they're leaving in the night. They're losing faith in him. They're losing their fear. 
Of course, this infuriates Flag. This is the last thing he wants to hear because, of course, he rules with fear. And Flag throws Nadine over his high-rise balcony in his rage. And it becomes clear that this is what Nadine had wanted. She knew that he had been the only one who could set her free, and that was by killing her. She's able to get under his skin, and he realizes it too late. Nadine falls to her death, and she doesn't even scream. If anything, this is a relief for her. Larry couldn't save her. Harold couldn't save her. Nadine had to save herself, and she did. And she took Randall Flagg's baby with her. This is really a fitting end to Nadine. Her entire story arc in this book was a tragic one, and she had a tragic death, although she went on her own terms. She was able to outwit Randall Flagg. She was able to provoke him into setting her free. It reminds me of Dana. She was able to get the upper hand over Flagg. And Tom, not that he was really trying, but he was able to get away unseen by the dark man. Flag, after he kills Nadine, can't believe what he's done. And when he tries to levitate again to clear his head, something he does when he's losing grip, he finds he can barely lift himself, even a quarter of an inch. So it's interesting to see how his powers suffer when he's starting to lose control. So things are definitely starting to fall apart for him. And he's trying hard to keep it all together. But there are some things that are out of his hands, some things he can't control anymore. And Nadine was one of them. So now he has no pilots, thanks to the trash can man. The third spy is gone. Nadine and his child are dead. He's even starting to question the loyalty of Lloyd, his right-hand man. I mean, who knows? If Lloyd was not so indebted to Flag, would he take off in the night like the others? If Nadine is right, men from Boulder are on their way to kill him, Flag, something else that he hadn't been able to see. To counter Flag's unraveling, Tom continues his way east. He's on foot now, having to leave his bike behind. And we learn Nick is coming to him in his dreams. And in Tom's dreams, Nick can talk. He warns Tom that they know about him now, and they're looking for him, so he has to be careful and walk on foot. He instructs Tom to look for God's finger, which is basically a landmark, so Tom will know which direction to go to. And Tom follows the instructions, despite thinking that talking to Nick is just a dream. And it's really bittersweet to think about this because Tom is so excited to get back to the free zone and see his friends, mostly Nick. But we know Nick has died. And we know that these dreams aren't really just dreams. Nick is speaking to Tom from beyond the grave. Abigail and Flag had been able to reach out to the survivors of the superflu through their dreams. And now Nick is doing the same with Tom. If you guys remember, Mother Abigail had told Nick that God had his finger on his heart. And this is a nice little throwback with Nick telling Tom to look for God's finger to guide him. So Mother Abigail was right. God did have his finger on Nick's heart. This was what Nick was meant to do. Tom doesn't yet understand that Nick has died, but I really love this. Because even in death, their friendship, their bond is strong, and Nick is still helping Tom succeed. Tom had purpose, and Nick is protecting him. It's an interesting development, reminiscent of book one of The Stand, where the dreams that plagued the survivors. And I'm so glad we get to see Nick again, although not directly. I always thought Nick's story had been cut short, that he deserved more. And this is King's way of giving that to us, of continuing Nick's arc. There is definitely a wild card in this chapter that we also don't see directly. Trash Can Man. 
But next week, we're going to be back in his head as he searches for something. Something bigger than incendiary fuses and dynamite. Something that would strike fear into the heart of anyone, including Randall Flagg. And we will find out what that is next week in Chapter 68. So what did you guys think about this chapter? Did you think Nadine's ending was a fitting one? Are you guys glad to see Nick again? If you would like to reach out to me, you can do so by sending me an email at thecirclecloses at gmail.com or on social media at The Circle Opens. You can also reach out to me at the blog, thecircleopens.com. That's it for today's episode of The Circle Opens. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope you'll stick around and see what happens next. We have 10 chapters left of The Stand to get through. So we are almost finished with this giant, giant book. (laughs) I hope you're all staying safe. Wear your masks, social distance. Please stay healthy. And M-O-O-N, that spells see you next week. 